This is a Federal News Network podcast. This month, an academic program that benefits professional skills of students and helps the U.S. military solve crucial problems celebrates five years in operation. Hacking for Defense has had more than 2,000 participants. Here with some of the highlights, a program backer and managing partner of BMNT Partners, Pete Newell. Pete, good to have you back. That's all. Thanks for having me. And you kind of developed the academic courses connected to Hacking for Defense. Give us some of the highlights over the past five years. How has this all been going? It's absolutely amazing to see how it is changed from being a prototype that we actually ran with BMNT that we thought we were going to, to cancel. And I'll talk about the first time we did this. We ran a program looking at problems for a government client over spring break at Stanford. And we got to the end of that thing. And, and you know, we said, really, we don't well. You know, we, we got to the point that the premise of using problems as a driver to change the conversation between DOD and Silicon Valley worked phenomenally. Unfortunately, the, the idea of using uh, graduate students during the school year was just really hard because, you know, they have classes, they have all kinds of other things to do to get in the way. And in the outbrief of that session to former SICDEF Bill Perry and a few other defense luminaries, we were set to say that it was a great idea, but not scalable. When a student had, who had been helping us stood up in the back of the room, had no military background, said, hey, wait a minute. Had this been a course at Stanford University, I would have taken it. And, and from that, you know, less than, less than a year later, we launched the first hacking for defense class at Stanford, not knowing that the government would actually support us with problems, not knowing that, that Stanford would ever let us teach the course, and, and finally not knowing that the students would actually be interested in it. We went from a single course in 2015 that had more than 190 students sign up for 32 slots. We had, I think, 18 government sponsors bring us 24 problems. And before we ever taught the first class, we had other universities coming to us saying, you know, you're going to open source this thing and we want to teach this course also. Can you help us get set up? So five years later, Hacking for Defense in partnership, really a partnership between the National Security Innovation Network, which is the DOD program manager for Hacking for Defense, EMNT, and the Common Mission Project, which is the nonprofit that we spun out to manage academic programming, has built that course now that it's taught. It was taught in 37 universities in the United States this year. It was taught in seven more in the United Kingdom. And we are just last this month launched one in Australia. We also have interest in Singapore, Japan, India. We're working in Chile to, to help them get started in a number of other countries. And that's just a defense-based program. Next year, we're looking at somewhere between 60 and 70 hacking for defense courses taught at different universities internationally. In many ways, then, this belies that notion that the snowflakes of Silicon Valley and their safe spaces on campus and all the rest of it, there are those that understand the importance of national security and are willing to put their brain power behind helping it. There absolutely are. And, and yes, yeah, Stanford can be, you know, asking for the snowflake mentality. But I will tell you that I've not met, at any university we've been to, I've just not seen any pushback on the course. And, and of course, the idea of teaching students how to take a real-world problem and learn about entrepreneurial methods while they're actually talking to real people, working on a real problem, tends to give them real experience that is highly, highly sought after in the workforce. 
So virtually every university that teaches this class understands that that outcome is these students are highly sought after and we're producing something that's worthwhile. The other concept, though, is we're actually providing an opportunity for these young students to actually perform a national public service in in a manner that fits with their lifestyle. And I'll tell you, fully 60 to 70 percent of the students who take this course continue to work with their government problem sponsors after the course ends. Give us some examples of the types of issues that have been solved or attacked or moved along in terms of challenges for DOD and the military and national security that have come from these collaborations. So, you know, coming out of the very first class, we we had a problem related to countering illegal commercial fishing, which if you think about this problem, it, it's, you know, multi-trillion dollar impact, particularly in, you know, the Pacific Ocean. And it is largely the impetus of conflict between multiple nations because that's their food source. So we had a student team come into the course with the idea of using synthetic aperture radar from low Earth orbit satellites to do something and really found this problem to be the right nexus of, of their intellect focused on a real-world problem that, that does something. That team left the course, realized that they had the promise or the premise for a data company focused on SAR imagery and, and eventually launched the company. <laughs> and, and now they're launching satellites. I don't want to say they have four or five satellites up now. There are hundreds of millions in funding into that team that started out as a hacking for defense team. Sure. And you'll hear the CEO often talk about how the course built the basis for his company and how he still uses what he learned inside the company. And would you say that the pandemic and the very large range of problems it has engendered, has that been subject of some of the recent work? Yes, it has. One is we had to learn how to teach online. And what we found was the ability of students to get out and talk to people virtually. People were suddenly more were more accessible. So, so we actually found that we're getting more problems into the course and we're getting more students interested in the course. And the students are getting access to more and more people faster, which is it's just creating an even richer course. Now, the course also spun out a bunch of different versions. So, you know, we started with Hacking for Defense. We are now teaching a Hacking for Diplomacy class that's ongoing at Georgetown University right now. There is a Hacking for Sustainability uh, course being taught in the UK right now. We have taught a number of environmental or climate-focused programs. In fact, I think there are three Hacking for Environment Oceans courses going on this year. And now we're now looking at a series of post-pandemic hacking. For, I guess I would call it hacking for local. But it really centers on when people talk about the economy and building back better, what exactly better is? And how do you take this, this course that's built on entrepreneurship principles and these students and focus them on the local communities? How do you get Main Street back to a healthy place again and, and build a community that's more resilient to you know, future pandemics or future um, disruption? And in many ways, the whole premise here then takes the onus of solving every problem off of a trillion-dollar federal program and puts it into the economy where the economy benefits, the entrepreneur benefits, and public life benefits. Yes, and the very first thing that happens is the the economy pushes back on the government program and says you have the problem wrong. And that's the very premise for, for all of these hacking poor classes. They're all problem-based. And, and what we've come to understand is no problem survives first contact with this course. So the real danger, Tom, is that, that the government largely has perfected the ability of perfectly solving the wrong problem. 
you know, is wasting assets and doing that because they're not spending enough time curating this problem, prioritizing, get the problem definitions right, and understanding the speed at which the technology related to the problem is changing. All of that comes out in the course of, of one of these um, sessions. So the students start to dig into it, and, and usually the first pivot you know, startup, you know, as a change to the business plan. In this case, the first pivot is when the student team looks at the government and says, your problem's wrong, and here's the correct version of the problem. Pete Newell is managing partner of BMNT Partners. Great five-year start. We'll hope to check in with you, well, before the next five years, but thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. And he is a former director of the Army Rapid Equipping Force. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, Since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, Great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, All of these are backward-looking development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over two million employees, Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I 
move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all, but is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've uh, led, this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.